Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store. What's up, New Song Church? How are we doing this morning? Man, it's good to see you guys on spring break weekend. Some of you guys probably, I don't know if you just came back from in town, you probably had plenty of excuses not to come to church today, but you made it. And so I'm pretty sure, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that's like an extra jewel in the crown in heaven. So just props to you. I'm proud you guys made it to church this weekend. But if you don't know me, my name is Jackson. I serve as the student pastor here at New Song Church. I've had the privilege of doing this for the last five years now, which has been crazy. There's not a single place I'd rather be than at this church, and there's not a single youth ministry I'd rather be pastoring than the people here. Can we make some noise for our New Song students? And it really is hard to put into words how faithful God has been in New Song students. And today we're talking about a really special miracle where Jesus multiplies some stuff, and like God has been multiplying and New Song students, and I want to preface with, I'm not talking about numbers. We have grown a lot in numbers. Like, we started with a small group, and we have a lot of amazing kids in our ministry now, but I'm not talking about numbers. God has been multiplying spiritually, taking our students so deep in the Lord over the last two and a half years, and I I say this to them all of the time, and it's a very cliche, like, youth pastor-sounding phrase, but when I say it, I'm being literal. I'm not, I'm not joking. I say, I, I look at them all the time and I'm like, you guys are going to change the world. And I, I mean that. I believe our new song students are going to change the world. And we don't even realize the kind of fruit God's doing in new song students right now. We're going to see it like 5, 10, 15 years from now. But they are, they are moving. And so church, buckle up. Look to your neighbor and say, buckle up. And I also want to remind you, they need you. Like the next generation, God is raising up the next generation and he needs the last generations to stop looking at this next generation and just like pointing out how messed up they are because of social media and like, look at how bad those Gen Zers are with that TikTok. And like point, all we're doing is just pointing out the bad, how mentally ill they are. And guess what? They know they need help. (laughs) They don't need us to just keep pointing that out to them. They need another generation to come up behind them and to pray for them. So church, would you just commit to continue doing that with me and for me for the next generation? Amen, church, right? Let's go. But that's what I'm normally up to uh, these days. But today, uh, my job is to continue this awesome series that we've been in for the last five weeks now. Have you guys been enjoying this series, Seven Signs? It's been so good. And so If you want to uh, follow along with me, we're going to be heading over to John chapter 6 to read this miracle, this sign that Jesus does for us. And if you haven't been here for what what we've been talking about this last five weeks, let me just bring you up to speed really quickly. We're in a series called Seven Signs. It's all about the miraculous signs, miracles that are unique to the gospel of John. Now, they're not unique in the sense that they're only found in the book of John. Some of these are only found in the book of John, but they're unique in the reasoning behind why John puts them in the book. So if you remember at the start of this series, Pastor Tondra did an incredible job letting us know that there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've ever gone through the gospels before and you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know they sound really familiar, right? It's like episode reruns. They just sound really similar. And that's because they're called the synoptic gospels. 
They're all written around a similar, similar period of time. They have a similar format in their writing and their storytelling, but John was written much later. It was still written by an eyewitness, but much later than the rest of the books. And so John's take on who Jesus is, he's got a totally different vibe to this book. And he is trying to communicate this one picture of Jesus for us through the book of John. He's trying to portray Jesus as God. Like Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just some special example that we should follow. No, Jesus is making the claim, I am God. I'm divine. I'm unlike any other. And in order to communicate this reality, John is picking specific things Jesus says that point to this and specific signs Jesus does that point to this. And we know that this is the case because John is the only book that includes the I am statements of Jesus. Have you ever read the I am statements of Jesus? They're only in the book of John, and it's because John is trying to communicate to us, Jesus is God. Like one of those I am statements, Jesus just says, I am. And that's really powerful because any Jewish person that was hearing Jesus say this, they knew what he was saying. He was calling himself the same name that God gave to Moses through the burning bush, I am. I'm Yahweh. And so when they heard this, they were like, whoa, he's making a bold claim right here. And that's why John picked that statement. That's why he put the I am statements in there. And in fact, we actually have done an I am statements series. If you've been here for a while, you know, if you're not, I would highly encourage you go back, watch those I am series. But today we're talking about the signs. John carefully curated these specific miracles for a purpose and we know that he picked them for a purpose out of a lot of other ones that he could have put into the book because look at how John ends the book. This is powerful. John 21, 25 says, now there are also many other things Jesus did. Think about that. We don't even know all the things Jesus did. There are many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's an awesome verse right there. I dare you to meditate on that passage on your next day off. Like, think about that. That verse is telling me, Jesus, I don't even understand how good you are. Like, I know you're good from scripture, but John just told me we didn't even put all the miracles in that Jesus did. That's how good he is. He's so much better than you think. He's so much greater than you think. We barely scratch the surface of who Jesus is when we behold him our entire life. Like you can seek him your whole life and you've just scratched the surface of who he is. That's our Jesus. And so today we're gonna to be continuing looking at Jesus doing the sign of feeding the multitudes or feeding the 5,000. And this is actually a really interesting sign. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the only miracle of Jesus aside from the resurrection that's in all four gospels. So that's a pretty unique thing, just to come into this knowing there's some weight to this. It's in every single one. Out of all of the miracles that Jesus did, not all of them made it to all the books, but all four gospels contain this miracle. And so there's some weight to that today. So as we go into this, we're gonna read this whole sign. I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna start to dig into some of the details, some of the amazing things Jesus is doing in this sign. Are y'all ready? I said, are y'all ready? Okay. Please excuse my sniffles. I've been dealing with a sickness. I'm better now, I'm not contagious, but if I'm sniffing, just, just ignore me, okay? So we're gonna read this whole sign and I want you to lean in with me. Starting in uh, verse one, John six, it says this. 
After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover feast, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing there was a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't even be enough for them each to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Imagine being there, 5,000. This actually doesn't even include the women and children that were there. So there's more than 5,000 people here. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five loaves of barley left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. But look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to be on the mountain by himself. Okay, we're gonna dig deep into the scripture, so I hope you're ready to take some notes, church. You, y'all ready? Yes. But let's pray. Let's set our hearts um, and just open our hearts up for this message that God has for us. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I thank you so much for your presence in this space. God, your sweet presence that we got to encounter and experience during worship. And I thank you, God, for that reminder, man, that it really could have only been the blood. It could have only been the blood that we are sitting here today, that, that we're walking in any sort of freedom or, or provision or righteousness or anything we walk in. It's all pointing back to the blood. And so we thank you, God, for your presence in this space. And I thank you for this sign, this amazing miracle that is pointing to something. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to know and to receive and to pick up what you were pointing at for us today. We need you and we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen, amen. So Jesus, he does a lot of really incredible miracles. They're all recorded in scripture, but I don't know about you. This one, this one takes the cake for me. Like I wish I could have been there to see this miracle take place. Now, obviously everything Jesus did was really amazing. Like Pastor Tondre, I'm not trying to put your miracle down that you preached on, but like, but like Jesus turning water into wine, that was kind of a subtle miracle. Like it was kind of a little sleight of hand trick from Jesus. Only the people who were passing out the wine, the disciples and his mother actually knew it was even a miracle in the first place. And like, it wasn't like, you know how some pastors do like those analogies where they have the clear see-through water and they turn it different colors. Like they were in barrels. So nobody knew what happened. So it was a good miracle. But I'm okay with just reading that one. Well, what about, what about the miracle when Jesus heals the blind dude and he like spits into some dirt with his saliva and wipes it on the guy's face? Like, I'm, I'm okay with just reading that one, Jesus. That one's a little nasty, okay? 
I'm okay with sticking to reading that. But the miracle of feeding the 5,000 is wild. This miracle is wild for so many different reasons. First off, let's just take into consideration the scale. Like how many people were on this field? 5,000 men, not including their, their, their wives and their children. So there was upwards of at least seven to 10,000 people in this field, so many people. And then Jesus multiplies a little boy's lunch and feeds the entire crowd enough that they have 12 baskets left over. I would have loved to be there for this. And then let's be real. We're all thinking this, but what did the multiplying part look like? Like, did Jesus like pull off a piece of bread and it was like, like just grew in front of their eyes? Like we're all wondering, like, how did that happen, Jesus? And when I get to heaven, that's going to be one of the first things that I'm like, hey, can we go back to that live stream? Can we watch that back? Can we put instant replay that? And Jesus, think about this. Jesus, if he had done this miracle for just his disciples for lunch, that would have been enough. Like that would have been enough of a miracle if he just multiplied for his disciples. We'd still be pulling truth from it 2,000 years later like we are today. But he doesn't do that. He does it for 5,000 people. And this is God just totally showing up and showing out for his people. It's just God's extravagance. And so this story, there's some, some important details that I wanna point out to you that really breathe some life onto what Jesus is doing in this moment. The story starts off with John letting us know that this took place during Passover, during the Passover feast. So this was a time of the year when Jewish families and men, it was mostly just men, but if they had the finances and the resources to take their families along, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it is known that this Passover meal, um, you know, there would be upwards of 3 million Jews pilgriming to Jerusalem. Can you just take that into consideration for a second? That's, like, that's not like our little 4th of July celebration, you know, at downtown Edmond with the parade. This is 3 million people in Jerusalem. And they're all there to celebrate the Passover feast, which is this. It's God's miraculous saving of his children out of Egypt and then his provision for them in the wilderness and his presence leading them. That's all that's on their mind. People would literally interrupt their flow of life, pack up their whole family and travel to Jerusalem just to remember God's faithfulness. Like they would do that and they would remember his faithfulness, his presence, his provision that was on their mind. And what what I want you to see with that is they are ripe, to know what this miracle is about. Like their minds are so ripe and ready to see Jesus do this sign and to know exactly what it's pointing to. So this miracle takes place during a specific time in the year where they're all collectively thinking about their story. And remember, Passover wasn't just looking back. It wasn't just about looking back and seeing God's faithfulness then. Passover was all about, hey, God's gonna raise up another prophet one day and he's gonna bring freedom again. That's what Passover was about. And then we see um, this whole miracle when it's being performed, Jesus, it is so wild when you start to dig into this. Jesus is just stepping into so many Old Testament prophecies and types and shadows. He's fulfilling so many things in this. It is wild. He is trying to make as clear as possible to this Jewish crowd, I am that prophet you've been waiting for. I'm the person you've been looking forward to. So I wanna look at some of these because the book of Mark gives us some other details that help breathe some life into this story. So the book of Mark lets us know that before Jesus does this miracle, what had just happened was he had just sent out 
the disciples two by two. Do you remember this? He sends out the disciples two by two. They go out casting demons out of people, healing the sick, proclaiming God's kingdom to the world. And they come back and they are tired. They are tired from ministry. And Jesus sees that on them. He sees that on their face. And then not only that, but right before um, they, he, he does this miracle, they just found out that John the Baptist has been beheaded by King Herod. So his disciples, they've just come back to Jesus. They're tired from ministry and they're grieving from the loss of their brother, John the Baptist. And Jesus sees that they are not fit to pour out anymore. He sees that they're tired. And so he says, okay, hey, let's come over to this mountainside. We're gonna find a desolate place because they know this is Passover. Everybody's making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So we need to get away from this crowd so that you can rest. So this is the context of where this takes place. But then we know the story. The crowds, they are following Jesus like the paparazzi and they see Jesus they're like, there he is. And they all chase him. And look at what Mark says. Mark 6, 34 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And then we skip down to verse 39 and he says, then he commanded them all to sit down in the groups on the green grass. Now, these two little details that Mark includes in here are not a coincidence. Mark is including these two details, and I love this. He doesn't just say that Jesus looked at the crowd and had compassion on them, and that's it. And he doesn't just say, hey, I'm looking at the crowd, and I have compassion on them because they look hungry. No, he says, it looked, he, Jesus looked on the crowd. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. And then he lets us know that Jesus does something really cool. He commands them, he makes them sit down, lie down on the green grass. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, it is so cool. He is stepping into, hey, the, the shepherd in Psalm 23 was a type and shadow of me. Psalm 23, look at this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. That's pretty good, right? So Jesus is stepping into this. There's just so much Old Testament imagery in here. He's like, I'm the shepherd. That shepherd you've been meditating on for thousands of years, that was me. And so he makes them lie down in green pastures. And then Jesus is not even done yet. Jesus takes an Old Testament miracle, does it again, but 500 times better. Literally 500 times better. Look at this. He revamps this Old Testament miracle that happens in 2 Kings chapter 4 with the prophet Elisha. It says this, a man came from Balshalissa, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give to them the Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So then he said it before them and they all ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Sounds pretty familiar, right? That's because Jesus is stepping into this Old Testament prophecy. He's multiplying the barley loaves just like Elisha did, but Elisha only did that for a hundred dudes. He's doing it for over 5,000 people and he's doing it with hopes of this crowd saying, oh, he's the prophet. Oh, 
This is the prophet we've been waiting for for over 400 years. Now, for us modern day Christians, we read scripture and sometimes this Old Testament imagery, it's hidden to us. We don't recognize it as much because we're not as familiar with it as they were, which is actually kind of ironic because we all have like five Bibles in our house and um, we have the internet. So we can learn literally whatever we want to. But, but these people were very familiar with the scriptures. They came from an oral tradition. And so they would, their, their church services, they would just read large portions of the text and they would retain everything they were hearing. And then not only that, but children, Jewish children at an early age were committing large portions of scripture to memory. So these people knew God's word. And so what I'm saying is they knew God's word so well that when they recognized Jesus stepping into that role of the shepherd, Psalm 23 is coming to their mind. And when they see Jesus performing this miracle that Elisha performed, but even better, 2 Kings chapter 4 is coming to their mind. And you would think, after all of these Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is hyperlinking back to, you would think that they would finally get the message, but they don't. They don't. They mistake the sign for being the main thing. They mistake the experience that the sign is inviting them to, and they would rather just take the sign itself, and they miss out. Now, I don't know if you've ever been taught this passage of scripture before, or maybe you've interpreted it this way, but I remember hearing this passage preached a lot, you know, as a student, as a youth ministry kid. And the takeaway was this, just whatever you got, give it to Jesus and he'll just give it back to you better. That was the message. And, you know, as a youth pastor or as a youth student, I loved this message because they would talk about it. And usually the youth pastor would always include a joke about how awesome it would be to multiply bread. And as a teenager, that joke lands really well because teenagers love food and you can eat whatever you want whenever you want, however much you want, and you feel totally fine, right? And when I was a student, like I spent the majority of my paychecks on Taco Bell. And so it'd be cool to save some money and multiply my Taco Bell. But so that joke always landed well in student ministry. It's kind of like an easy plug. And then, you know, the youth pastor would go into a really encouraging word about how this little boy, what did he do? He trusted Jesus with what he had. And look at what happened. Jesus gave it back to him better. Give Jesus what you've got, and he is going to multiply it. Now, again, that's a pretty encouraging word when you're a student and you don't have anything. (laughs) So you're like, yeah, I want more stuff. But when we isolate this miracle from what surrounds it, when we isolate it from the context, guess what? We end up missing out just like the multitude did on what the sign was actually pointing to. And this is actually something we're focusing on right now in New Song Students. We just started a series called Head in the Clouds. And it's a series all about learning to take a bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot view of scripture. And the whole purpose of this series is to help our students to see that the Bible is not just a book full of a bunch of random little stories, but it's a book of stories telling one story. Like the Bible is not just a bunch of random history random wisdom and teachings of Jesus, and then it just somehow came together to form the Bible. And the Bible is also not a book about how the Old Testament God was mean and harsh, and then God became nice when Jesus showed up. Like it was the same God, you know that, right? Same God. And so the whole point of this series is we're trying to get our students to see that the whole Bible is telling one story, and that's the story of Christ. It's all pointing 
to Christ. And when you isolate God's word, like so many of us do sometimes, it's not even, by, not even on purpose necessarily, but we read God's word through a microscope and we miss what it's actually pointing to. We miss, the, we miss the, the thing that it's pointing to, but when you understand that the Bible is this overarching story of who Christ is, it gives you context for what you're reading in the moment. And that's what we're attempting to teach our students, that context matters. If you're taking notes, write this down. Context grounds us into the truth of who God is, not the image of God that we create in our minds. Context grounds us into the truth of who God is, not who we want him to be up here. And that's really important because A.W. Tozer says this, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. So the way we see God really matters. The way we see God really matters. And for many of us growing up, myself included, this story has been taught to us and it's been isolated from everything that surrounds us. And when you take this miracle out of context, what ends up happening is you turn Jesus into this almost like cosmic slot machine for your life. And you know what? You can bring Jesus anything and he will multiply it for you. So you got talent? Well, trust God with that talent and you're gonna be in the NBA one day, bro. You got a business? Trust God with that business and it is going to flourish. Whatever you got, just bring it to Jesus and he is going to multiply it back to you. And what this has created in us, it is the American dream Jesus. It's the American dream Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if I would have admitted to being in a relationship with the American dream Jesus going up, growing up. I don't even know if I knew I was necessarily doing this. But what has happened is when I was growing up, I, I totally treated Jesus in this way. Jesus, I'll trust you if it works. But what I've learned over my walk of faith is I have had to lay down this picture of who Jesus is. And you know, this is a process that every single one of us is going to go through in our life, not necessarily with this, but it's the process of laying down who we want God to be and picking up a relationship with who God actually is. Laying down who we really want God to be and picking up, Jesus, this is just who you say you are. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust that. Now, um, I was thinking about this this week in one area where this kind of reinforced this American dream Jesus for me was when I was 16 and I was getting my license, I had no money to buy a car. And um, my parents couldn't necessarily just dish out money to get me a car too. And so I didn't have a car, but my dad had his car, his old car. It was one of his first cars. And it was a big part of our family like identity. It was always at our house. And we had a lot of pride in this car. And so when I, got, when I turned 16 and I got my license, my dad gave me his car. And so if you knew me in Frisco as a 16-year-old kid, you would have been seeing me cruising around in this puppy. And uh, this is a 1974 Volkswagen Beetle, bright red, very hard to miss. And uh, this is actually a picture of my Beetle. It's at my parents' house. Um, it does not work anymore, unfortunately. We are going to get that thing back here in Jesus' name. But um, I miss this car so much. I loved this car. I smelled like a lawnmower all the time. Um, I probably sounded like I was driving a lawnmower um, because little VW engines are just so tiny and cute. And so I loved this thing. 
I love this thing. We would pack like five to six dudes in this car during the summer, no seat belts, and drive to Taco Bell. And it probably looked like we were a bunch of clowns getting out of a clown car. But I loved this car. I wish this was my car right now. I really do. But over time, over time, I knew that this car was not going to last the long run for me. I knew after a couple years of driving this thing, I needed a new car, especially because I was getting ready to move to Dallas to go to school. And um, if you've ever driven on Dallas highways before, then you understand why I didn't want to take this glorified go-kart with me to Dallas. <laughs> so, so I knew I had a problem, still didn't have any money because I was a terrible saver. And, um, but I knew I needed a new car. So I prayed, I prayed. And I wanna be completely 100% honest with you. When I say I prayed, I mean like I prayed twice. <laughs> like I wasn't like persistently praying, like the, like the persistent widow and just driving God crazy with my prayers. Like, no, I prayed twice. And like, I really didn't care that much. My relationship with the Lord at this point in my life was not that deep, but I prayed twice. And I was like, God, I just, I need a new car. Would you do something? Would you help me? And so not much long later, somebody from our church called my parents and they said, hey, we love your son and we don't really know why, but the Holy Spirit told us to buy him a car. So we bought him a car. Do you want us to bring it by and drop it off? And so my mom, she, she comes to me with this amazing news. She's like, Jackson, somebody bought you a car. And my first thought my first response was, well, what kind of car is it? <laughs> and my mom was like, are you kidding me? You don't care what car it is. They bought you a car. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but still in the back of my head, I'm thinking like, man, I hope I like this car, which is just so shallow. But, but I got upgraded. The Lord upgraded my ride. I went from a VW Volkswagen bug to a 2001 red Ford Explorer. This is what she looked like. Um, we called her Dora the Explorer, and um, I loved this car. I loved this car. But at this point in my relationship with Jesus, he just miraculously came through for me. Like he literally, he just came through for me. God provided. And please hear me. I am not minimizing today the provision of God. Like God provided for me. That was all God. But what this did was really subtle. Did something in my heart. And I said, oh, see, this Jesus thing works. You trust God and he multiplies. And sometimes we experience the favor of God. We experience the blessing and the provision of God, which is a very real thing. That's a part of being a Christian. And I'm not trying to diminish that tonight or today. God, as a Christian, he's your father and he provides for you. He's miraculously providing for you day by day. That's a real thing. But his miracles, his provision, his resources that he floods into our life, his upgrades that he gives to our life, if we're not careful, we can allow the benefits from Jesus to be the motivating factor for seeking him. And as much as I love the benefits that do come from seeking Jesus and being in a relationship with him, guess what? This miracle is not about the provision of Jesus. It's not about the miraculous provision of Jesus in our life. And this is what happens when, going back to context, why context is so important for us. 
is when we isolate this miracle from everything that surrounds this miracle and we isolate just the part that we love, we can make it say whatever we want to say. Because Jesus, if we just read a little bit further along, he lets us know exactly what the sign was pointing to. And that's not what it was pointing to. So is, is it okay if we dig just a little bit deeper into this? We just keep going? Okay, I wanna read this to you. Because Jesus does the miracle. All of the people are like, whoa, this is crazy. Bread, what? And John 6 Verse 14, let's just remember what happened. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. I love this quote from Leon Morris. He says, he who is already king has come into the world to open his kingdom to men, but in their blindness, they try to force him to be the kind of king they want, and thus they fail to get the king they want and lose the kingdom he offers. So directly after we see this miracle take place, Jesus is not done. He just walks on water across the Sea of Galilee, like no big deal, just multiply bread. Now I'm just gonna mosey on over to the other side of the sea. And the crowds the next day, they're like, where is Jesus? We need Jesus. Look at this. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. So they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That's interesting. Look at that phrase there. It says they were seeking Jesus. But look at what this Greek word for seeking is. It's zeteo. It means to seek in order to find, which sounds obvious. But the picture it's painting is they are seeking and they are expecting to get what they're after. So they're expecting to get what they're after. And John writes that they were seeking Jesus, but Jesus sees what they were actually seeking. Look at this, John 6, 24 or 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate your fill in loaves. So Jesus is coming out hot right out of the gate. And he's addressing the elephant in the room. And he's like, hey guys, I know you think you're seeking me, but you don't want anything to do with me. You just want the bread I gave you. And New Song Church, I think this, is a, this brings us to a really simple, but extremely important question that we all have to ask ourselves. And it's this, do I seek Jesus for what he gives me? Or am I okay with just seeking Jesus? Am I materially driven to seek Jesus or am I relationally driven to seek Jesus? And this is not just like a one-time checkup in our life. I had to do this this week because of the world and the society that we live in. It is so easy to be sustained by anything and everything but Jesus. But we have to ask ourselves, am I okay if I sought Jesus for my entire life and I never got the blessings that I wanted? Would that be okay with me? Am I okay with that? Because if I'm materialistically driven to seek Jesus, one of two things is gonna happen. Number one is this, we will become practical atheists. Mark Sayers says this, the stronghold of the contemporary world can turn even the religious into practical atheists. How? By furnishing the possibility of operating on a kind of secular autopilot. 
We can move through our lives without a thought or need for God, since the modern world will deliver all of our needs. And this is where we're simply Christian by title. We're Christian, disciple, believer by title, but our life is not actually sustained by Christ. It's just sustained by all of the things that this world can offer me. And this turns us into practical atheists. I I claim to be a Christian, but I live just like an atheist. And what this does is when I'm so materialistically driven towards Jesus, it numbs me to the real need I have for true bread, for true bread. The second thing that this does, if I'm materialistically driven to seek Jesus, is I will seek Jesus as long as it works. Jesus is is making my life easier. Hey, this Jesus thing works, bro. You need to be a Christian because it makes your life better. It makes your life so much better. But we need to recognize as Christians that we also experience loss just like the rest of the world. In fact, loss is just as much a part of the walk of faith as gain is. I wanna say that again. Loss is just as much a part of the walk of faith as gain is. That could be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a business endeavor. Maybe you sought something that you thought God called you to and the whole thing just crumbled to the ground. And now you're, you're having to deal with the reality of what you thought life was gonna look like and what it actually looks like right now. Like we all go through loss. And if you are only materialistically driven to seek Jesus, then guess what? When you experience loss, you can start to entertain doubts. Because you can start to think like, well, man, I don't know if this Jesus thing is working right now. I don't know if this Jesus thing works. Like I thought it worked then, but right now I'm not so sure if it works. I thought this was the prophet, but maybe it's not the prophet. You see? And we see this very thing happen with the crowd. They seek Jesus. Jesus reads their mail. He exposes them for not even wanting him in the first place. And then he lets them know exactly what the sign was actually pointing to. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, look at this, I'm the bread. He said, no, 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 you are not getting the point of the sign. I'm the bread. I'm the bread. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is like, I know that bread tasted good, but forget about the bread. It wasn't about the bread. It was about me. I'm what sustains you. I'm enough for your life. If you seek me, you will get everything you need in me. I'm all you need. And then after, and then after this, after Jesus reveals the true meaning of what that sign was talking about, then he really starts to dig in. And he, he just hammers the nail on the coffin. Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. And then look at what happens directly after he says this. John 6, 66, after this, many of his, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? 
See, they were willing to seek Jesus as long as it worked for them. They were willing to seek Jesus as long as it made sense, as long as Jesus was providing them with what they wanted, what they were after. But the second Jesus threw threw a curveball at them, the second they heard a hard teaching from Jesus, you know what they did? They left him. David Guzik says, the crowd was willing to support Jesus so as long as he gave them what they wanted, bread. It's easy to criticize how the crowd loved Jesus for the bread that he gave them, but we often only love Jesus for what he gives us. We must also love and obey simply for who he is, Lord and God. So New Song Church, I just want us to take an analysis of our walk recently and ask yourself honestly this question, what has been my motivating factor recently? Why have I been seeking Jesus recently? And I wanna remind you, there's no condemnation for how that question is answered. No condemnation, no shame, because this is not a question we will only be asking ourselves today. You're gonna have to ask it again. I asked myself this question this week, but today, New Song Church, where are you at? Where's your walk with God? Why have you been seeking him? Is it just because he makes your life better or is it because you actually want Jesus? Because I think sometimes we even look at scriptures like seek first the kingdom and all will be added to you. And we read that with the American dream Jesus lens. Because we read that and we say, see, look, 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 seek the kingdom and all will be added to you. Like the kingdom of God is a means to an end for you getting everything you want. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. The kingdom is what you actually want. And everything else you get is just God's favor on your life. Everything else on top of you getting the kingdom of God is just grace upon grace. So what's the motivation for your pursuit, church? Is it driven on reward Or is it driven on relationship? Because I'm here to tell you, I wanna wake some people up today. If your driving factor for seeking God is just what he can give you, you are missing out on what the relationship with Jesus Christ has to offer you. There's so much more to seeking Jesus than just getting the next carrot in front of us. There's so much more for you. There's a piece of God for you that's bigger and better than any bank, uh, bank account statement that you will ever have in the future. Like, There's a peace that you can have right now with whatever your bank looks like. There's a security in the presence of God that you can have no matter what the circumstances of your life look like. And not only that, and this is what I wanna close with today, there is a work God has for us. There's a work God has for us. You have a part to play in ushering God's kingdom into this world through your life. Christ wants to multiply himself through us to our world, he has a work for us. And look at this. Jesus says this in John six twenty seven. He says, do not work. In other words, don't live your life for the things that perish. Don't, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God has set his seal. So the people are like, okay, I like the sound. I like the sound of this bread. I want this eternal bread. How do I get it? What do I need to do to get it? Look at this. They say this to him. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in me. The work, think about that. The work God has for us is to trust him. 
That's the work that we're invited to. It's not to strive. It's not to hustle. The work we're invited to is to trust Jesus. You know what this work is? You know what this parable actually is a picture of? It's a picture of the work of prayer. The work of prayer, because this parable or this story is not about us bringing what we have in the natural in order for Jesus to give us back more in the natural. But I do think that this is a perfect picture of what we bring to the Lord in prayer and how Jesus multiplies what we bring to him in prayer. He multiplies himself through us to our world and he distributes his life through ours. Corey Russell says this, he says, prayer is a beggarly calling. Prayer is a beggarly calling. And that doesn't mean that we beg for things from God. What that means is the world sees what prayer is and they see it as worthless, as pointless, as low. Like our world sees prayer as us bringing God our little fish and loaves. And just like Philip, you know, Philip, when, when the little boy did that, Philip looked at that lunch and he was like, are you kidding me? You think that's gonna work? You think that's gonna feed all these people? Not even the best that this world has to offer can fix this problem. And you think that's gonna work? And the world, you know what they see when they see Christians praying? They see that as, you think that's gonna work? You're just talking to the sky. You think your prayers are actually doing something? But what does God say? God says he takes the foolish things of the world and he confounds the wise. And so this is a picture of prayer. When I come to prayer, you know what? I don't bring a whole lot. I don't bring a whole lot except my heart and my words. But what does Jesus do with our prayer? He takes it, he multiplies it, he distributes himself through us. And there's a work God has for you, church. But when I am so materialistically driven on Jesus, guess what? I'm too caught up in myself. I don't pray for other people or God's kingdom to come because I'm so focused on me. I'm so focused on if God came through for me yet. But when I am relationally driven and I know that God's my father and I know he will always come through for me, you know what that opens me up to? The work of prayer. Because now I actually see what needs to be prayed for. I read this about a month ago. It's this really cool story about um, the famous evangelist from the 19th century called, his name was D.L. Moody. And um, this story rocked me and it, it, I read it and it inspired me to just give Jesus every little tiny bit of margin I have towards prayer. Look at this, I wanna read this to you. He says, Moody's entire evangelistic strategy was prayer. That's it. In an oft-told legend, Many before me have recounted that Moody famously carried a list of a hundred names in his pocket every day of his adult life. 100 friends who had no relationship with Jesus. Moody's labor of love was secret, hidden prayer on their behalf. He, placed, uh, he pleaded with God to reveal himself to each of them in a way that they could perceive and receive as eternal love. He prayed for them by name for their salvation. When he died, 96 of the names on the list had become answered prayers. A 96% success rate in prayer is not that bad. I'd take those odds any day of the week, but it gets better. At Moody's funeral, the four remaining names were each in attendance. Those four friends independently, so moved by the memorial service 
that they all came to faith at his funeral. Praise God, right? <laughs> Praise God. You see, see when, my, when my drive to seek Jesus is just my stuff, just how he makes my life better, I'm so blind to the fact that he wants to use me to see people in my family who are not walking with him come to know the Lord. When I'm so focused on me and getting my needs met, I don't see my employees, my fellow school that is lost. And Jesus wants to distribute his life through us, but he's looking for our lunch. He's looking for our prayers. Who's gonna bring him what little they have in prayer and trust that he will do it? Who's gonna do it? And I think when we hear this too, what I'm not trying to say to you is like, we all need to start like carving out three hours of intercessory time with the Lord. Like, sure, if you can do that, that's great. But I'm talking to the normal people in the house tonight, okay? What little can you give to Jesus in prayer? Like what little can you offer him? What would it look like if you stopped giving yourself that like that music time that you want on, the, on your commute to work and you just gave Jesus your commute to work? Like what if you gave Jesus a 10 second prayer every time you walk down the hallway of your school? Like, God, I want you here. And I know you've called me here for more than just school. So use me. I'm saying, I'm telling you, it's little stuff. God does not need that much, but he needs us to pray. So are you willing to pick up the work of prayer to rest in the fact that my, my physical, natural needs, God's got those. So because of that, I can rest in that. Now I can look. And where, where does this world need healing? Where is our world broken? Where has Jesus not been invited to yet? How can I invite him into this area? And when we do this, what we're doing is we're bringing our, what little we bring to Jesus in prayer and we're leaving it with him and we're saying, God, multiply it. Multiply yourself through me. Amen, church. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we get ready to close? Thank you, Jesus, for your body. That you, this miracle of you distributing bread was not a one-time incident, but you still, to this day, you are multiplying yourself through the body of Christ into this broken world. And you're looking for a people, you're looking for a church who will recognize what the sign was pointing to. You're looking for a people who's willing to seek your face, not your hands. And God, we remind ourselves this morning that Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you're enough. If you didn't do a single thing for the rest of our walk with you, you are enough. You're enough, you sustain us. And so Lord, we repent forever seeking your hands over your face. Lord, we repent for using you as a means to an end for our life. God, you are the end. You're the end. And we want you, Jesus. We want you here at New Song. Church, we're gonna get ready to respond. And I think if you just wanna stay in an attitude of worship, I think there are two responses for today. I think number one, maybe you're here today and that answer to the question, am I materialistically driven for Jesus? Maybe for you, that answer is yes. Yes, 
man, I have been seeking Jesus to make my life better, and that's it. And if that's you, I think the Lord is inviting you to just come up to the altar today and to lay that down and to pick up a new, view, a new view of who Jesus is, a view of Jesus that sees Jesus as enough. And if that's you today, I wanna encourage you, don't leave this room without coming down and just letting somebody know at the altar, hey, I've been seeing Jesus wrong. I've been seeing him as a means to an end and I wanna see him as the end goal. So I'm laying down that view of Jesus and I'm picking up a fresh one today. So if that's you, I wanna encourage you to do that. But I also, I think the other response is this. If you're a person and you're here today and maybe there was something you were contending for, something you were believing for in prayer in the past and you never saw the fruit of that prayer and so you stopped praying it. You laid that prayer down and you're like, I guess this just isn't gonna happen. I guess that's just not God's will. I guess this Jesus thing doesn't work. I'll pick it up later. I think today is the day. Jesus is saying, would you pick that back up? Would you believe that I can do it? You you stopped praying because you didn't see the fruit, but I want you to keep praying. I want you to do the work of trust and believing in me and believing that I can distribute myself through you and to you. So church, would you stand with me today? And I wanna invite the altar ministry team to come down to the front. And if that's you, we've got two responses today. And don't leave this room if that's you. If you know that's you, come down to the front. And if you come down for prayer, man, don't be ashamed. This is something worth celebrating. Every person we come to, that we see come down for prayer, we're celebrating with you on our behalf. But if that's you and you say, I need to put down this wrong view of Jesus, or I need to pick up that prayer that I left because I never saw the fruit of, that is your response today. Church, would you respond with me? Maybe you need to raise your hands right now and worship. This is not a time to check out but this is a time to respond with our hearts to what God is telling us. God, we love you. We praise you. And Jesus, we just commit again to saying you're enough. Jesus, you're enough. If you never gave us a single blessing, a single favor from here on out, we would be content. Just like Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. I'll be content with whatever you give me because you are enough, Jesus. And we wanna see your kingdom ushered into this world through us. And so if we need to pick up the work of prayer, help us to do that today, to to believe and to trust that you are our good shepherd. We love you and we praise you today. This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message.